Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I have a fascinating and encouraging conversation with the designer, writer, and educator Natalia Ilyin. Natalia is a professor at the Cornish College of Arts in Seattle, where she teaches design history and criticism, design for social activism, and transition design. And she's also a founding faculty member of the MFA in graphic design at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. At Cornish, she co-founded the Parallel Narratives Publishing Experiment, where she is dedicated to making design history more inclusive by growing historical data from the student up rather than from the historian down. But this episode was actually recorded on the publication day of her brand new book, Writing for the Design Mind. And that's where we begin this conversation. We talk about the relationship between design and writing and how she encourages designers to think about writing as well as her approach to teaching design history, finding your place in the design community, and the value of criticism in the design field. I loved this conversation. It went into places that I was not expecting and got much more personal than I anticipated, but I just love talking to Natalia and appreciated her approach and thinking. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Scratching the Surface is supported in part by listeners like you. One year ago, we launched the membership program to help support the ongoing production of the podcast. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that recaps the month's episodes and gives a preview of who's on next, as well as links to recent work and news from all of the former guests. These memberships really help keep the podcast going, and I just appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this really wonderful conversation with Natalia. Talia Eline. Over the last week or so, I've been reading your new book, Writing for the Design Mind, and I love it. And I've been thinking about you and that you were the person to write this book. And I think you are the perfect person to write this book. (laughs) But it got me thinking, what came first for you? Were you a designer first or interested in design first? Or were you interested in writing and being a writer first? Oh, that is such a hard question. You would start (laughs) out with a hard question. (laughs) You. Um, Okay. So I have to backtrack. So I am ambidextrous. Mm. I'm most, I write with my left hand, but I do a lot of things with my right hand. And, you know, when you take those little tests about your brain, my yeah. brain is rather divided perfectly. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the method it is, is divided into two equal parts. And um, I come from a family that, is a bunch of writers and a bunch of artists. Not My mother was a hat designer. She was a milliner. And my father mm. was a painter. So from a very young age, I was doing both equally. Right. And there was a very bad moment when I was in my 20s when an art director said, Natalia, you're going to have to pick whether it's going to be images or words. <laughs> and I said, no, I couldn't pick. That. Mm-hmm. And so it actually sort of dogged me through my, through my um, academic, you know, time that I was a student. Um, yeah. But later on, it became a, a gift. Yeah. So what did, what did you pick? 
when you were told that you had to pick, how, how well, I what decision did you make? <laughs> <laughs> I quit the job and went um, and went to New York and became an art director. So I guess I did, I did pick images for a while there. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, so, it goes back so, and forth. So how did the writing? come back in or or was there was that always a part of it wasn't so I went to grad school because I didn't know anything about design I had gone I had had an English degree a degree in British literature okay but I could make money as a designer so I was a completely self-taught graphic designer I worked for a poster designer named David Goins David Lance Goins who's a Berkeley poster designer very California sort of a nouveau okay recessionist right yeah big yeah thing in the 80s you know big yeah. in the 80s that make a good title anyway <laughs> and he's a he's a charming man and autodidact really interesting guy actually um so I worked for him and then I went to New York and worked as an art director. And then I was running out of steam because I didn't have enough education. I didn't know, I didn't have things to uh, look into and say, oh, I can, I can do it this way. Let me take a mm-hmm. look at, you know, somebody. And mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about that. So I went to grad school thinking that it would bump up my ability to access different aspects of design. But what it did was make me realize that I wasn't a designer that what I really love to do is talk about design and worry about design, think about other people's design and help my, my professors write their books, but I didn't really like to design. And I, and you know, I had taste, but I wasn't a genius designer. And I went to school with people who were genius designers. So it was very clear to me what I was not. Was that, I, I, I'll tell you a little bit of a personal story that hopefully will lead to a question. Um, I studied graphic design in undergrad, uh, worked as a designer for a while, but always had an interest in writing, in criticism, in kind of the more academic side of design. Just all the stuff around design was always something that was very interesting to me. And so my goal in going to grad school was to find a way to build a career that could include all of those other things because there was I couldn't find a place to do that in the jobs that I had had. Uh, and the types of design work I was doing kind of wasn't that interesting to oh, me. Oh, right. Yeah, I get that. And so, yeah. And so I went to grad school almost thinking maybe I'm going to move away from design and move into writing about design, talking about design. Mm-hmm curating shows about design, teaching design. And then I got to grad school and kind of realized that I also still liked the design process and still found a lot of value in the design process and kind of, okay, now how do I do all of these things? Mm -hmm. And so now post-grad school, (laughs) I have this career where I'm doing all of those things. (laughs) And I kind of am starting to think, you know, Design is actually, out of all of these things I'm doing, the actual design part is probably the thing that I'm the least good at. <laughs> and maybe maybe I'm like kind of how you're talking about where it's like, I'm, I'm an okay designer. I'm a yeah. mediocre designer. I have taste. I know how to yeah. do things. Right. I can do work, but I'm not a design genius. Right. But I think I'm kind of good at teaching. I think I'm kind of good mm-hmm. at talking about these things. I mm-hmm. think I'm good at organizing 
things around it. Uh, and it's it's been, I'm telling you all of this because it's something that's, it's so funny to hear you say this because it's something that's been on my mind the last couple of months as I kind of think about my future and, yeah. and where I kind of want my career to go. And part of, and I'm torn because design is the only thing that I've ever done. And it's so core to my identity. And I don't know if I want to I truly admit to myself that my place in the design field might not actually be as a designer that or is- being a designer is a small part of that. You've been in, well, that's incredibly painful time. And also it is because you've been inculcated by graduate school and by school in general and by people you know and by the hierarchy Mm -hmm. of design that that's what you want to do. You want to be a designer. And it's extremely difficult for people who are good at two things to find a find a niche or find a more like a, I'm thinking of a climbing wall, you know, finding a comfortable spot on the climbing wall because it is not as a well-trammeled path, you know? Right, right. And each person who does, we do very similar things. I don't have a podcast. I wouldn't, I'd be terrible at that because all I want to do is talk about myself. So (laughs) but but we do similar things, you know, and uh, we found different places on the climbing wall. Um, right. So, but I think it's a harder road, but it's also for me, it has been a much more satisfying road uh, than designing was because, you know, what you have to be a mature person to say, you know, I'm not that great at that. But yeah. <laughs> you know, you have to be rather than I'm great at everything, which is sort of what we inculcate. Right. So, I mean, I guess that that's kind of, that's kind of what, where I was going or kind of the question that I was thinking about is, a, what has that been like for you kind of realizing that and then and moving forward, but then also kind of in that moment and kind of realizing that and kind of deciding that your work and your place is on the other side of this. Mm-hmm. Was that a hard realization for you? How'd you, how'd you kind of you know how feel I about that? that the way I figured that out is by listening to people, mm. people's criticism and not criticism like negative stuff, but just what they mm-hmm. said to me. And what people said to me all the time, they'd be like, oh, you know, that's okay. You know, that whatever thing you made, you know, okay, yeah, that's nice and everything. And, but look at that. I mean, that is such an interesting article you wrote. Right? <laughs> right. So you just like suddenly the key goes up and everything. You have to really listen to what people are saying to you and hear it. Yeah. Are they saying more to you, Jarrett, about your podcast or about the, you know, the whatever thing it is that you just designed? You have, right. to, you have to look at that and you have to say, first of all, there's a certain amount of them being exposed to your podcast more probably. So you have to, you know, you have to think about that, but you know, what are they saying to you? And then is that, does that correspond to what you feel inside yourself? Right. Right. And they're really hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I don't want this whole conversation yeah, to just therapy. be kind of therapy about <laughs> <laughs> about, about my career, career choices. Um, Happy to do it, but that, that's not what's going on. What we're saying to each other is we both have had this experience. How did you do it? How did you do it? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. That's yeah. And experience. and you're exactly right. And for a long time, just, just to kind of wrap that up, that, that strand up for a, for a second, you're exactly right. And I, I had a hard time uh, when the podcast started getting more and more listeners right. that the designers that I admired, the designers that I wanted to be like when I was in college now know who I am, yes. but they know who I am because of a podcast, not because <laughs> of any design work. Yes. And I didn't like that for a long time. 
I felt really weird about it. Um, and I, I don't anymore. Uh, kind of, it's exactly what you're saying. I, I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a funny, it's a funny thing. And I think people who are listening to your podcast and hear us saying that they, they might have one of two reactions. They might say, Oh, well, you know, this person basically rationalized themselves into uh, <laughs> another career. Or they'll say, they'll look at themselves and ask themselves the hard questions. Am I a designer? Is that my best use of my time on the planet? And if right. not, what is my best use? And that's a hard question. Very hard. And and honestly, one of the goals for the podcast that I actually hadn't totally connected to my own career or my own experience until this conversation <laughs> is that I want to show people who are interested in the design that there are multiple ways to be in this world. <laughs> to in the There are different world. ways to practice design. There are different ways to be a part of the design world. Design is a lot bigger than we are often taught and often kind of are trained. Yes. And I kind of want to show all of these different possibilities. And, and <laughs> I, I didn't totally think that maybe that's because I'm one of those different possibilities, you know? <laughs> you are one of those different possibilities. And look how much richer your life is for you than right. it would be following a path that someone else actually was uh, created for you. Right. So, yeah, yeah. pretty interesting. Now, this is not to denigrate being a designer. You know, there are <laughs> just right. say that there are certain people, I've known one or two people, one or two people in my life who were designers from the time they were 13 years old, and that's what they wanted to do, and they are fantastic. They have a bullet, as they used to say in Billboard magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just what they do, and, and they do it fantastically well. But others of us are more like spider webs, you know, mm. more like... Uh, and if Silas ever listens to this, he'll laugh because Silas Monroe, because we're always yeah. talking about nodes and rhizomes. And oh, yeah, yeah. The nodal one and use the rhizomatic one. But um, we're more like nodes for cultural information. And, mm. and that's a much, for me, a much more satisfying life. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, to, to kind of like turn this back on, on, your career and the evolution of your career, hmm. when you kind of realized that split and that mm-hmm. that design wasn't necessarily or being a designer yeah. in the traditional sense was the kind of career path you were on, mm-hmm. how did that turn? Where did you end up going next? Is that when you started? Were you teaching then, or or kind of how how did all of these things start to come into that career? Well, the interesting thing is, okay, so this is the weird thing. My career has been just a series of fabulous accidents. It <laughs> I love been. that, and it always cracks me up when my students, whom I adore, uh, think that they're going to plan out their careers because yeah. they're not. They're going to plan out a ladder that they're going to try to go up or over. Um, but it's life is not that way. So I was always planning structures that I was going to do. And then something would hit me from the side and it would be far better than what I had planned. And then I would just do that. I would get on that mothership for a while. So there was no plan. Okay. That's a long answer to your short question. 
There was no plan. However, I did. Ha- you asked me sort of how I got started in this. Is that what that question? Was? Yeah, yeah. So I guess you know, even if there wasn't a plan, where did you? You had to do something, well, and so you, I'll tell you what <laughs> happened. I know you had to do something, and so the first thing that happened to me is, as my father used to say, my father, the English professor, used to say, "It's not who you know; it's whom you know." Okay. <laughs> So I was in grad school and Ellen Lupton tripped in and she was like youngest, brilliant person, you know, to ever hit the planet. And she came in to talk to us about something and she read something I wrote and she said, do you want to put this in the AIGA journal? At that time, the AIGA had a a journal. Right, right. So I said, are you kidding? I would die for that. So I wrote a little piece for her in the journal. That's where it really got started. And then um, um, uh, Steve Heller called me up and said, do you want... You look like you could use a job. I didn't know him. He said, maybe, I think I queried him for an article. And he wrote back and said, you know, you probably need a job. Why don't you take this job as the director of programs for the AIGA? Oh, wow. I said, well, yeah, I'll take that job since I was eating, you know, lentils. So so I did that for a couple of years, a few years, and uh, learned a ton. This was years ago. This was in the 90s, right? So Mm -hmm. 90s world. And I got to be sort of the butler for every famous designer ever. All those old modernists who started dying off right then, I met right. them all, right? And I'm right. sort of giving them coffee and stuff like that and asking them to speak and so. But I met everybody because of that job. And then that made me a good history teacher later on because I knew mm-hmm. them all. So it was like stories Natalia tells of her, you know, misspent youth. There's something about the timing of that that I think was also really perfect. It was. For you, especially as design writing in that moment, suddenly had a new type of currency. And and at least seems to be a hunger. There seemed to be a hunger for it. What was that like? Were were you able to kind of plug into that? I was. And you know, after when I started writing about design, it was a tiny, it's still tiny. It was a tiny niche. There were like three people writing about design and you'd see them over and over in those critical, those wonderful little critical books, whatever they were called, looking closer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's where I first saw your name was in one of those looking closer books. So if you looked closer, you saw that it was the same seven people over and over. Right, right. So, and they were really good books and they were cited the first books of these sort of critical uh, compendia uh, in America. Mm -hmm. There were some in Holland and stuff, but anyway. And so, so then, you know, your little, that's a little niche and you know, the people and they know you, you don't really know them, but you see them over and over. Right. And then there was like one book for design history. And we all know what that book was, right? (laughs) Phil Meg's book. Yep. And and during the night, so that's where I came in. I came in with the seven people and the Phil Meg's book. Right. And there had never been, it's so funny now, because that's 20 years ago, more than that, more than that, 25 years ago. 20 years mm-hmm. ago, nobody questioned the notion that history was not a linear progression out of the darkness and into the light. And that design history, design history, not history, design history was this famous person, this famous person, this famous male white person, this female mm-hmm. white person. Mm-hmm. So that's what it was. And none of us questioned that. Right. Uh, so I had a moment to say, you know, actually, I hate all of this. And actually, where am I supposed to stand? You know, 6'2", Natalia, with this mostly left-handed. Where do I fit into that? 
So that's why I wrote Chasing the Perfect, which was about that modernist agenda. Yeah, you know, and it's it's interesting. And, and I wanted to talk to you about design history and, and kind of how you think about design history even now, because like you said, so I went to undergrad in the mid 2000s. Oh, okay. And we still use the, the, the school where I went still used what? Megs as the design history book. Right. And it, it was presented as this very clear linear mm-hmm. uh, story. Right. Uh, and it also, and of this person was then influenced by this person, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Like you said, all men, all white men, most yes. of them in Europe. Yes. Um, and also, kind of got boiled down to just style and aesthetics. Yeah. This is what stuff looked like here. This is what stuff looked like here. Yes. No context, no None. kind of larger story. Yes. And then, you know, 10 years later, yes. as, a, as a teacher now, uh-huh. finding myself thinking about design history, I catch myself sometimes falling yeah. into that I just because that's how I was taught. Yes. And I'm curious how you think about that. How do you kind of well, show this larger history, both that both design history, not just as a series of styles, but also not just a series of white men in Europe? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like how do you have hit the nail on the head? Here. Listen, <laughs> yeah. So I am old. Okay. And I'm supposed to be like, you know, wearing down and sort of (laughs) taking more days off and stuff like that. But but I can't, I I haven't because a whole huge thing developed, which was, you know, history. Mm -hmm. So as it turns out, perhaps time is not a line and perhaps facts are not truth. Mm. So when you start to think about that, what time is and what, truth is and the truth of a of a, an object being held in its context you realize that uh, sort of everything we know about design history is is an interesting patching together of facts but perhaps does not betray the truth of the matter hmm. you know what i mean yeah so and i was lucky and this is where this is where it gets weird because i was lucky enough to have a wonderful linear uh design history teacher when i went to grad school i had to take design history because i knew nothing about design and i took it from this teacher doug scott who's the well oh yeah yeah he's the well-known historian of uh and i took it in the 90s when i went to grad school and then i took it Again, because I happened to be chaperoning a young kid in the summer school at RISD like 20 years later, and I took it again. I just sat in on the class again. Um, And so this guy is the greatest linear historian we have. And you need to to read, or he doesn't really write things, but you need to go to his class to see the best of that. Right. Right. And so it's good to know what the best of that was. Um, however, so I got the best of it. But that said, that story, the way we teach it now, has been completely blown apart. Mm-hmm. That story is a huge fiction, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what's really interesting in design. And so I have, I have, um, we have a, a project going on where I work, 
which is called Parallel Narratives. Yeah. And my co-teacher and I are just basically compiling bibliographies a la Andrew Blauvelt, who mm-hmm. in the 90s, his wonderful little bi- bibliographies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our students are compiling bibliographies about things they think have been left out of the conversation. That's all, that's mm. their entire prompt. What What is missing from the conversation? And uh, we, we, we're making books about that. So she and I, she's extremely young compared to me, but she's an art historian that became a design historian. You know, that's another pathway, okay. right? Yeah. Um, her name is Elizabeth Patterson. Uh, so she and I uh, got our students to do this because we teach, we decided let's teach them the linear story with our own cr- critical addenda. In that first year of design history, they get four semesters, which is more than anybody ever gets. Oh, yeah. That's a lot. There's 18 credits. They get, in, in their whole thing, they get 18 credits of design history and criticism. Yeah. So so they have two long 15-week semesters of the Western canon with addenda. You know, take a look wow. at this. Think of it. And then they have two semesters in which they decide what was missing, and they, they do like 100 citations in these bibliographies. Wow. And then uh, they have, and then that second year is called parallel narratives. And we look at a narratives that did not come in to the Western European mm-hmm. days, you know, mm-hmm. and we don't know the answers in that year. So mostly <laughs> it's more of a conversation with the students than it is here. I'm telling you this, it's here. I'm telling you yeah. this in the sophomore year in the, in the, in the junior year, I will start a lecture and then everyone piles in and sort of says, you need to put this woman in there and you need to put this guy in here from Africa and, you know, whatever. Yeah. And we look at the gaze and it's not just the male gaze or the Western gaze. It's every person has a gaze. <laughs> right. Look at right. Our own agenda for history. So it all come, gets sort of blown apart. And then. Yeah. I love that. Together. Oh, it is so cool. And my students are so amazing. I've never had students. Okay, I just have to say this thing about students. Okay. Hot a, a few places. I teach at a little college that wasn't even on the map. When I heard about, when I was asked to teach there, I didn't know where it was. I never heard of it. It's a little college, <laughs> Cornish College of the Arts. It has like 650 students. It's tiny. Oh, wow. So that means we can control and manipulate <laughs> what they learn. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, I went off on that tangent about where I was. What did I start that? What was the beginning? You were going to talk about you were going to talk about students. Oh yes, yeah, so uh, students are um, the kind of students that we make them do this. We force them to do this bibliography. They start out like thinking that history is dry, and they end up, you know, yelling at me in the hall about how they can't believe they didn't know this woman existed. Right? Yeah. Yeah. They are incredibly intense students and they get this bibliography done in that first semester. In the second semester, they're like, can we present this? And can I write a paper about this? Because I need to be- Oh, that's amazing. It's completely opposite from any experience I've had before. Yeah. I think there's something interesting about, I've had a similar experience and I taught a typography class last year I guess it was that had a lot of type history in it and Mm -hmm. I I tried to present it I I actually wish I went farther with it now kind of hearing how you talk about it but 
kind of presented that linear history, but presented it as a, this is what we say is design history. That's what you you know. Yeah. But it's not the whole story. And so kind of invited the students to challenge it, to ask questions about it, to kind of wrestle with it a little bit. And I was so blown away by how into kind of thinking about this they got. Uh, and then yeah. and then kind of realizing that history is this living thing, yeah. that they are a part of it, yeah. and that like even something as simple as like saying that some kind of work is experimental feels kind of old fashioned yeah. now. Because look uh, what and, you're putting and they on got it. it. Look what you're putting on it to say it's experimental. You're right. You've got a whole concept behind that, like, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and and the, and that they got into it and got that and raised questions that got me excited. Uh, just like completely changed how I think about design history because of basically just asking my students some questions yeah. and what they came back with kind of blew me away. Okay, so here's the big thing. So I've taught history for a long time, right? And so I taught it originally the way I had been taught it, just like you did with uh, writing. Mm-hmm. And and I didn't question it. I didn't question mm-hmm. it. I thought, well, maybe there were some women there obviously were inferior. Honest to God. I thought <laughs> right. that. I, I it just was completely inculcated. So I would teach through the, from the Meg's book, and then that's what design history was. And it's been a slow process. And the process um has been instigated by my students, by our right. right. It hasn't, it wasn't my idea. It was theirs because I had, I particularly remember one student, Chelsea Reyes. I, for some reason, I can remember her name. I can never remember anybody's name. And she hammered on me. This was like 10 years ago, maybe or seven or eight years ago. She hammered on me. Why are we not studying any Mexican designers? I was like, because there are no Mexican designers. Honestly, wow. I thought that. I thought maybe there's one or two, you know. Yeah. So she said, well, here's some Mexican designers, Natalia. And sort of the scales fell from my eyes. That's how yeah. you don't have to start out aware. You just have to listen to your students. Right. And they will tell you what they need. Can we talk more about that kind of evolution for you as a teacher? I'm, I'm interested in, I'm going to ask you this question in two ways. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious about how your own teaching philosophy approach process has changed over your career as a teacher but i'm also interested in how i mean I, i've been teaching for four years now so I'm, I'm a very new teacher but i'm very interested in how design education has changed Ooh, yeah. uh, in general over your career because like i said earlier i mean i'm only out of undergrad mm-hmm. 10 years right. And it's already feels completely different. And I'm curious, someone who's been kind of teaching um, over these changes, what has that been like? Well, you know, I always feel I got into design at exactly the most interesting time there could have been because, (laughs) I I mean, I got my, I went to grad school in 1989. Mm -hmm. And at that time I had been a designer. I was 30 years old. I was like getting to be 30. I don't know if I was 30. And I had already had a career as a designer without a computer. So right. span that hand skills to computer skills thing. And I had to 
you know, I had to crack my brain open to learn uh, these these original computer things that we had, you know, in 1989. So I I survived that shift, uh, which is everything. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Maybe we should write a book about that. That's pretty. You know, it's yeah because it became design is not um, does not. It's not at all what it was originally. Uh, originally, <laughs> originally in my world, uh, right. and uh, so that process has been. I think for a different person, it could have been disorienting. But since I'm since I'm pretty much disoriented all the time anyway. But I've just always had to keep up with change. You know, you have to be a person who uh, sort. Of, I'm I'm not a person who embraces change. I but I. I see, I know it when I see it, you know, right. and I, I adapt to it uh, and try to figure out what's going to happen next, which is the fun part. Well, have there been any changes that have been especially hard in the industry as you think about like teaching those changes? And the reason I asked that, we, we were talking about uh, Nancy Skolos before we started oh. recording. And I asked, when I interviewed her and Tom, yeah. they both immediately were like technology, like that is the hardest change because it is moving so fast and you know you're kind of talking about like you know you survived that so uh yeah. that, that was no big deal what, has there been anything like that for I you i don't really care about technology so much i mean i live in seattle which is a techno world so it's yeah. just a given you breathe it and you don't think about it as something other it's just part mm-hmm. of your day you know i'll be I once was lecturing and I heard a buzz and I turned to the side and there was a drone <laughs> hovering by my head. Was it an Amazon one? I mean, you're no, in Amazon country. Not, oh, are we ever? Okay. I can't get, I can't get lift to realize that I'm not on the Amazon campus. Walk <laughs> all over to get it to realize I'm not there. Anyway. So it's just a part of your every day. And so it's a miracle. I, that I don't have to think about that much. I don't think that mm-hmm. technology is designed. So, you know, it's yeah. like, oh, now there's technology. I mean, technology has always been designed ever since Gropius. He was just like, oh, right. technology, you know, let's whatever. So that doesn't bother me so much. The thing that's been a hard change for me is um, uh, making in the olden days, there was one way to do things, and it was the modernist way. And if you right. figured out the rules of the game, you could play the game. Maybe right. The interesting and hard and interesting part is to have the layering effect of the postmodern era, really, or the postmodern mm-hmm. era, really. The layering effect of different um, patterns for for a uh, for good aesthetics. So mm-hmm. I have had to learn many, many relationships of aesthetics that um and then find cohesion in those as opposed to this is right and this is wrong right so that is more of a cultural shift and a, a a global shift um and that's the thing that's been hard for me but as far as you know okay now we can doodle in the sky with a free bloody blah who cares i mean yeah it's interesting my students keep me updated with it i don't have to think about it yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right, though. I mean, I think about that, too. And I, you know, yeah. and, and and maybe this will could lead into to a little bit of a discussion on, on criticism also um, of 
also, I, I don't mean to keep <laughs> just kind of bringing this back to my education. Well, um, education is very interesting. So, <laughs> but it was also like a very modernist uh, system in that you set up grids and you use these typefaces and this is good design and this is bad design. And that it, it connects to our design history discussion. Like that's not really true. Um, and it's really easy to fall back on that when you are looking at a bunch of students work that all looks different yeah. to then still hold that up as the, the judge yes, um, or as the criteria or as the, 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 the pinnacle of good design. Mm -hmm. But What's interesting to me about my students is how much more aware of design culture they are oh. than we were oh, in that yeah. they all have Instagram and Pinterest and all these things where they're like just consuming visuals in a way that just wasn't even possible Correct. Yeah. Uh, when I was in school. Definitely, when when you were starting, oh, has that changed how they how yeah. they kind of come to the program? It's a completely. <laughs> I mean, we had a Xerox machine, you know, as a graduate student, <laughs> like, ooh, I could put my face on the Xerox machine. I mean, you know, it was pathetic when you look at what. Well, yeah. Just yesterday. Oh, what day is this? I can't even remember. But the last time I was in class. One of my sophomores came up to me, pranced up to me and said, look what I did. And she had, they had um, made a, while, she, while I was talking, they had made a composite poster of uh, a picture of one of the Bauhaus um, dancer, uh, a dancer in the Bauhaus who was doing, you know, yeah. the, uh, that ballet, yeah, yeah, yeah. the triadic ballet or whatever. And, mm -hmm. and then right next to it, a picture of a chicken, a rotisserie chicken. And it looked exactly, it was the same form. Now, oh, wow. In graduate school, so she, they had done that in like five minutes. So graduate school, that would have taken me two weeks. Yeah. You know, so yeah. completely different, a different, the vocabulary is suddenly enormous and that's a problem for design for design students it's actually a problem you know there's a famous poem actually it's in the book because i i quote it somewhere by wordsworth well, yeah nuns fret not at their convent's narrow room and what it's a it's a son it's about the sonnet form allowing it's such a strict form it allows creativity so mm, yeah students who don't have a a, a formal structure one formal structure or, you know, a few, just a couple, uh, have the terrible decision-making of overchoice, you know, from overchoice. They have, right. They, it's very hard to establish their own voice because they are hearing every voice. Uh, so I think it's right. a real problem in studio. So I always ask students, I don't teach studios as much as I used to, thank God, but... <laughs> I always ask them to avoid just looking at everything. Just yeah. take a vacation and think about what's coming from you. But that's a very sort of, you know, Johannes Itten sort of movie <laughs> type of approach. But, but it really yeah. works, you know, so I, I go back to that. You know, the Zoroastrians had something going for them, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely am guilty of, of, of too much consumption too like i like i get it i think it's really easy to kind of fall down that oh it's so easy that, that hole uh, <laughs> and i think i think what you're saying about 
like all of these voices mm-hmm. and and I kind of want to connect that to criticism mm. a little bit actually oh. because you know you were talking about how when you started writing there were the seven of you yeah. and something that's interesting to me is how kind of everybody knows design now and I've talked to a lot of people on the podcast about how you know a company will redesign their logo and the New York Times will have a story about that now because surface (laughs) scratching the surface yep you got it is what it is about right now surface yeah but you know it's not as though we suddenly all became surface people it's just the technology thing I hate the word technology. Mm-hmm. I, I sort of never want to say that word again. Okay. All right. Well, we won't say it the rest of this conversation. I mean, people like technology. It's like when, remember when people used to talk about new technologies? Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Please stop. Okay. Yeah. But, but does, does, Sir. you know, does that, that, that type of discussion, that, you know, everybody is talking about design. Design has become this kind of buzzword in culture, yeah. even. Design thinking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was IDEO pretty much put a trademark on those words. And mm-hmm. business picked it up in the last, oh, I'd say, what, seven or eight years? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if I hear those words again, I will shoot someone, not myself, the <laughs> Yeah. It's disgusting. It's like, here, let's all prance around in a parking lot wearing, you know, tin cans on our heads. This is going to free us to design things. I mean, this is such a buzzword. And all I hope for American business is that it lets this go. I mean, we're in agreement. My dislike of of the term design thinking and what how design thinking is preached is well on the record in many of these conversations. (laughs) And I guess, I guess the question is, how do we kind of get that discourse back? You know, like, it can't go back to the seven people. Like, I actually don't, like, the, the field is too big for that. I think if we're only talking to each other, that's not helpful yeah. either. But if business, if uh, like the technology reporters, the business people, if these are all the people who are talking about design publicly, how how do we kind of take back control of that conversation? And be like, well, okay, but we kind of think about our work this way. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, think I have an answer to that. <laughs> okay, or a answer, not the answer. Um, and this has to do with the fact that I just had a very interesting conversation with a guy who's my financial planner, weirdly enough, okay. because when you, get, okay. you know, into your sixties, you have things like financial planners, uh-huh. weird, but anyway, <laughs> I was talking to him about money and he was, he got his degree in economics and he said, the most important thing in economics is to figure out what the assumptions are. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's it for design mm. design. Design thinking, the sort of the trademark to design thinking that all business people speak, is mm-hmm. is has got a very narrow number of assumptions. And those assumptions were sort of written on, you know, um, carved on tablets by IDO and the Stanford Design School. But that's not what design is. That's just a, a sort of little sketch of a kind of design uh, approach 
it is one design approach, but it is certainly not. You know, it's one of a hundred thousand. Yeah. Um, so I think the thing that we need to do is challenge assumptions. And every time somebody says something like that or it irritates you with that, you have to say, now, what is it that you think that is? Mm-hmm. Is it that you think design thinking is? Because it's not a question of taking things back, but of moving things forward. This I think this is actually like a really nice place to talk about the new book a little bit. Oh, oh we're doing that. Something that I liked about the book, and as I mentioned to you before, so recording, I, I'm teaching a design writing class, and so I was reading your book through the lens of my class, and that couldn't be better. We should have sent you one to, you know, yeah, how it worked with your. Class. Yeah, I wish I, I wish I had the book uh, yeah, like know. three months ago. Yeah, we would have done that. Yeah. Um, but one of the. I you know on the first day I gave them a couple readings about kind of the intersection of design and writing and how they influence each other and all of that mm-hmm. and I had them write down questions that they had from the readings about the readings and about the class and what the class was going to be and I had a couple questions about well why do we need to write um how does this help us get jobs uh <laughs> you know what is the point of design criticism? Everything looks, all design looks the same anymore today. You know, it was, it was like kind of yeah, negative questions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I used the same thing that you write in the introduction of the book, which is that if you think of the designers that you know, mm-hmm. who are like the famous designers, mm-hmm. they are all also writers. Um, I think that's current designers. I also think that applies to a lot of the designers of history. And I think talking about that, you know, challenging assumptions and I I think writing is actually a way to do that. And I think, you know, I I, want to, for people who haven't read the book, I want to be clear, you're not saying that all designers should be writers. If designers are doing that, that, that can help kind of start that conversation or at least offer alternative conversations. Oh, you are so smart. I mean, it's really true. So what it is, is that the world actually works on writing. I mean, you mm-hmm. hear it as speech, you know, Alexa or whatever, but that's all writing, actually. <laughs> right. right, yeah, yeah, yeah. All that writing is, is organized thought. That's what it is. It's not, you know, I before E except after C. And so what it really, you can get a copy editor for that. What real writing is, is organized thought. So... Every designer already does that. They organize thoughts. The reason it's important to write is that most of your audience, not your design audience, is getting their information from reading or from something being read to them, like a script, right? Right, yeah, yeah. And that's the way most people process information. We uh, design people process information mostly through our eyes, but... Most people process it through their ears or through reading. So that's a hard realization for designers because they don't think that way very often. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to just just to work that muscle because, as you said, if you've heard of a designer, that person is a writer. Right. Look at Thagmeister, you know. Mm-hmm. fantastic writer. Look at Mirko Illich, for instance, mm-hmm. or Stefan Bucher, any of those people, or Stylus Monroe. I could go on and on because I love all these guys. Anyway, 
Uh, yeah. I have to think of some women and some other people, but I can't. Anyway. Um, Lorraine Wilde. Thank you. Uh, please help me. Yeah. Ellen Lufton. Jessica Ellen Lufton. I'm really yeah. digging myself a grave here. Okay. So, yeah. So, Ellen. Oh, my God. I mean, how many books has she written? So, yeah. would you know about Ellen Lupton if she had never written a book? Where'd this idea for the book come from? Was this something you'd been thinking about for a while? Oh, well, you know, this is one of those those weird things. I plan one thing and somebody else calls me up and something else happens. So I just got a, an email one day from a publisher, Bloomsbury, which uh, Bloomsbury Academic, which is a part of Bloomsbury, which is a, an enormous publisher. And they said, would you like to write a book about writing for design? <laughs> I said, yes. And that's how that happened. I mean, so I always have these super lucky things. Um, yeah. But the reason that happened was, you know, I also put a spin on it that it's all luck and it is, but also I make things and stuff. So I had written a bunch of things about what to write, what to do and what not to do. These sort of tip sheets for my students and they were on my website. Mm. And so this editor had seen those and she thought it would be fun to have a design writing book. You open the book, you know, kind of addressing designers saying, you've probably told yourself the story that you're not a good writer, mm -hmm. that you're a visual person, mm -hmm. you know, all of this, but that these, these two activities are, are actually kind of more related than they seem yeah. and um, have a valuable part of their practice. Yeah. I'm kind of curious how you, <laughs> I don't know how to ask yeah. this question in a better way, but like, how do you sell that to designers? How do you well, kind of get designers to... Designers understand it. And, you know, you know that you have a good book idea when you start writing a book and you say, and the person says, what are you writing about? And I say, you know, I'm writing a book that teaches designers to write. And they get that look in the eye like, oh, you know, then you know that you've got a good book idea. If they're like, yada, yeah. yada, then they're not, you know, they're not interested. Yeah. Well, let me let me let me ask it not using the word selling because I I don't know why I led the question okay, just, that way because I I am thinking about it with my own design writing students who you know I asked them all what's your relationship to writing what's the last thing you wrote and you know seventy five percent of them I don't like writing I'm not a good writer I don't want to be in this class but it's required <laughs> just like what I was saying in the <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. want to do this. I hate this. I'm afraid my my body is setting into concrete. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, how do you? I, I guess you know whether it's with the book, whether it's with your own students. I'm asking this very selfishly. How do you kind of show designers that hey, you're not necessarily a bad writer? I mean, it's just like what you think of as writing. Yeah, is not the only type of writing. Kind of like what we were talking about design. Exactly. Well, first of all. I don't spend a lot of time promoting writing. I just spend a lot of time yelling at them about writing. You know, mm. I don't know oh, interesting. Yeah. Write, how wonderful it would be for you. I was like, clean this up. Yeah. You know, get serious. You need to speak yeah. the language of your culture and you need to be able to make a point. You need to be able to convince somebody and you need to be able to say what you have to say in the clearest and most accessible way, or else you're going nowhere. Mm -hmm. And whether you write that down or say it aloud, it doesn't really matter because all that you're really doing when you're teaching writing is teaching people to organize their thoughts, which means that they have to figure out what their thoughts are and then they have right. to map them and then they have to organize that map and then they need to spit it out. That's all. 
And when you and when you say it like that, it's actually kind of the design process. It is exactly, uh, I, and that's what I loved. I mean, not not to then just talk about how much I love the okay, book, but that's what I loved about it. I mean, you're the first, you know, you're the first uh, person that's really, you know, sort of talked about it to me. So it's. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess we should say for people listening to this, we're recording this on the day of the <laughs> publication. Uh, so it's not like, you know, that this book's been out and you haven't heard anything. And nobody talked about it. Yeah, no, no. I've been right. very lucky. Right. Uh, very lucky with um, very, we've been very positive here. It's been great. But that's that's kind of what I love about it is that you're kind of really showing that the writing process and the design process are kind of the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and the output is just a little bit different, but the kind of way of approaching a design project is actually kind of the way of approaching oh, totally. a, a writing project. Yeah, it's, you know, the whole thing with teaching writing is with like same teaching design or teaching, you know, I don't know how to plant bulbs. The thing that you have to do is make the student comfortable. And I don't mean that they should be sitting in a lounge chair. I mean, they have to be not afraid because people don't learn things if they're afraid. Right. right? So most of my teaching these days is about making students feel unafraid. unafraid Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And that's, that's really it. If you can really do that, then your students will bloom. And if, if you if you walk in there, especially as a as a teacher who has not had a lot of experience, and you start ordering around and thinking you should be tough and stuff, they're <laughs> right. all going to shrivel up, and you're not going to get any good work out of them. So, yeah. So the whole book premise is: don't be afraid of this. Don't feel like you don't. There's some big golden key that you didn't get. I'm going to teach you everything you need to know, and you can do it. And they can. Right. That's the really weird part is that guess what? They can do it and they become amazing writers. I have two more questions. These are the two questions that I use to end all of these conversations. Um, The first one is, um, and it's especially interesting to kind of ask you this now is as this book that you've just written is now out in the world. What are the topics or subjects that you're thinking about now? What are the, what are your kind of current, the thing Interest. that's on my mind now <clears throat> is how to circumvent the, the not to use the word gaze again, but I'm using it, the point of view that I have and be able to write or compile a, a small history book that does not filter design history through the Western um, mm. uh, Gaze, I said. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, my co-teacher Elizabeth and I, Elizabeth Patterson and I, are working on a proposal for a small book that's about twelve flat things, and there are twelve flat things that um, d- that different designers around the world um, think are important. So that each one of them has picked a topic or a thing and said, this is important to me, and this is why. That way, we get out of the conundrum of editing the person, because what we don't want to be doing is like, and here we are, two white Mm -hmm. females saying that this is good. You know, we don't want to be in that Mm -hmm. position. But we do want to make a compendium of these stories about why this piece of graphic design is important to this person at this time. I love that. That's what I'm working on. That's what we're working on together. 
My last question, you throughout this conversation, you've mentioned people that you've studied with or people that have influenced you and in, in your thinking. I'm curious, uh, you know, just for a few other either writers, critics, teachers, books that have kind of influenced how you think about all of this that we've we've talked about today. Oh, I just love your questions. May I just say you are important <laughs> Thank you so much. That means so much. I don't know if I've had this much fun since, I don't know, since I got a new year. Oh. I mean, this is really good. <laughs> this is fun. Okay. Oh, that means a lot. Thank you so much. I, I, I truly, really and appreciate I, that. I truly, really mean it. Um, I've been affected by weird things that have nothing to do with design. I love it. Go so for it. One of my favorite writers is Ernest Becker, who wrote The Denial of Death, which is about why we make things. Okay, that doesn't. I don't think I know that name. Ernest Becker. He died in the seventies. He died very young. He was a an anthropologist, a cultural anthropologist, and one of those guys who brings a lot of things together. So he bring he brings in a lot of things. Um, the The book I, I actually just excerpted for my students right now. You know, my poor students, what they read anyway. It's called um, <laughs> "The Birth and Death of Meaning." Right. So I'm interested in people who are interested in meaning and how things mean, right? So mm-hmm. I read stuff like that. Uh, who else? You know who really has influenced me hugely is my dear, beloved Jan Van Torn. Oh, yeah. Who was my advisor. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't and know that. He was my advisor it's in, in graduate school. Seriously, the reason I adore him is because he opened up the whole idea of using design strictly for social good um, and to getting away. He was the really the, the father of getting away from the, the, um, the thing that Gropius started, which was an alliance with industry. Mm-hmm. So, so his, his work in the 60s and the 70s and 80s and 90s and today, he's still working and making amazing collages today. His um, work is strictly about social good and that's different from design activism which is another thing really right so he's important who else i don't know there's so many people so many people have helped me along the way and just made huge huge um, contributions to my career yeah i love that i think that's a great that's a, a a great list, and that's a great way to wrap this up. This was so fun for me. Um, I I really enjoyed this conversation. Like I said, I, I love the new book, uh, and I'm really glad to have you on the podcast. Thanks for uh, thanks for this conversation. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. This episode was recorded on February 21st, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at Surface. Thanks for listening. <laughs>